I hope you have your Bible with you. Turn to Romans chapter 1 this morning. Two important verses we want to look at. I was a sophomore in college at Oklahoma Baptist University, and I took a class entitled Western Civilization. And in this class, we watched a series of 10 videos by Francis Schaeffer. And the videos were entitled, How Should We Then Live? You'll see a picture of Schaefer and the video series there. In this series, Schaefer traced Western history from ancient Rome to modern times along philosophical, scientific, and religious lines. Schaefer was a very influential theologian and pastor here in the U.S., finally moved to Switzerland with he and his wife. But in this series, he addressed the influences of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and Charles Darwin upon believers. And he asked the question, how then should we as believers live in light of all of these influences? I thought of that video series as I turned the first chapter of Romans. Because in this chapter and in this letter, Paul is writing to the the believers in Rome, basically asking them the same question, how should we then live for Christ in the world and the influences around us. Paul had never been to Rome. He was in Corinth. It was about 60 A.D. The believers in Rome had been there for a while. They were a pretty strong church. There was one Christian church there in Rome. And uh, the church is doing pretty well. There were no theological problems to write to them about. There were no issues in the church that he had to deal with like he did at Corinth. Actually, things were going pretty good. But he wrote the book of Romans to them to say, in the culture in which you live, how are you to live for Christ? Which is really a good question for you and me. So, right in the middle, the first chapter, verses 16 and 17, Paul put the kernel of the entire letter in two verses. Powerful verses, important verses. So read with me verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This morning, I want us to look at three things that Paul tells us about how we should live for Christ and the culture around us. And every one of them, all three, begin with the word for, F-O-R. Number one, the first one, verse 16, live unashamed of the gospel. Live unashamed for the gospel. Notice verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul had never preached in the West. The West was Rome, Spain, beyond Paul had always preached in the East. There is a big difference between the West and the East. Paul always wanted to go to the West, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. Kept him in the East. 
He always wanted to go preach there in Rome and Spain, and that was his goal. And he always write, that's my desire. But there was a huge difference. You see, the West was much more educated, sophisticated, progressive. They were thinkers. They were philosophers. The West was very progressive and cosmopolitan and very intellectual in the West, Rome and Spain. The East, well, that was Hicksville. The East, a lot of rural towns and less educated and poor peasants. The East was, well, that's, that's where everybody was backward. Smaller towns, not as refined. They were, they were rural. So, critics of Paul and critics of Christianity said, Paul can't handle the West. That little gospel he's preaching in the East would never make it in the West. It would get exposed. It would get blown out of the water. So, Paul, you just keep preaching in the East to those little small towns and those little poor peasants and the less educated. You keep preaching that there was this man who never lived in a significant place out in the hills and the deserts and the caves of Judea that you say was crucified and rose again and that gospel of yours, you just keep it in the East because we're much too sophisticated here in the West. Paul's afraid of the West, they said. You might say he is ashamed of his gospel. Rome was something. It was a sight. Rome was... Rome was power. Just to say the word Rome echoed power. You see, Rome began 8th century as a real small town in central Italy on the banks of the Tiber River. But by the time of Jesus, Rome had grown into the greatest empire and the kingdom in the world. By the time of Christ... Rome covered most of Europe, Great Britain, Western Asia, Northern Africa, the Mediterranean, expansive, and it had so much influence and wealth and power and sophistication. Rome was the height. They had a common language that all the dialects of that, of that time period rose up, and even today, the languages of Italian and Spanish and Portuguese and French and Romanian all came from the Roman Empire. And they had this extravagant road system that they developed. You see, before Rome, it was dangerous to travel very far because if you went very far, the roads weren't good and there were robbers and it was just dangerous, so nobody traveled. But whenever Rome came along, they had 50,000 miles of road system throughout the empire. You could travel anywhere on nice, smooth roads. They made it safe. The peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, made it safe to travel. And you could go anywhere, do business, conduct commerce, and bring the wealth back to Rome. And they did. That's why the phrase, all roads lead to Rome, they did. We have a lot of our culture that, is, um, that we owe to Rome. Our government is Roman in nature. Uh, the way we vote, the Senate, 
how it operates is straight from Rome. Uh, if you enjoy running water and if you enjoy indoor toilets, thank the Romans. Because they started maneuvering water up to 57 miles through aqueduct systems. Our architecture, much of it is Roman, Greco-Roman. And our sports stadiums built like the Colosseum. And our calendar is all Roman. In fact, the month of July is named after Julius Caesar. His successor after him was Augustus, so after July comes August. And then January is the Roman god Janus, and March is the worship of Mars. Our calendars full of Roman influence. And their homes, unbelievable for the day. I mean, they had mansions. They would call them our domus, the mansions. And Rome had their private baths. That was unheard of. They had saunas in their homes and exercise rooms and theaters in their rooms and in their homes and atriums and open-air courtyards. And that was just their home in Rome. Then they would go to Pompeii for their summer homes. Oh, they were wealthy. And they were smart. And they were progressive. And the Colosseums. They filled the Colosseum 100 days straight. Can you imagine not going to work 100 days straight, going to the games, the festivities, and enjoying them? They didn't have to work. They had all the wealth coming to them. So for 100 straight days, they would have games in the Colosseum. They even filled the Colosseum up with water and had naval battles. Believable. Oh, Rome. Rome was the center of it all. Wealth, intelligence, extravagance, education, culture. And Paul had never been there. So those Roman Christians began to hear the critics. He's ashamed. Ashamed to come. His little gospel can't handle it. So Paul wrote a letter to the Roman Christians, and he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is, uses a Roman word, power of God. You know, I was thinking about this, and we have the same attitude in our culture the Romans had the gospel don't we I mean outside of these walls there can develop an attitude of well your little gospel needs to stay in the church it's much too sophisticated out here for for what you believe what you believe is old-fashioned and what you believe is irrelevant what you believe is out of date so you just stay in the east behind your stained glass because outside these walls You'll get exposed, you believe. And we'll blow you out of the water. You're not intellectual. Your little non-scientific, non-progressive belief system in this right here is old-fashioned and out of date. If you aren't progressive, we have progressed beyond the Bible. 
You try to debate us, if you try to debate science and philosophy and intellect with your gospel, you'll get exposed. That's what our culture believes. And you know what? We cower. We are ashamed of what we believe. Gender identity. Oh, we hear it out there. And so we go, well, I don't really believe that. I believe God created male and female, but I guess I better not say a whole lot. I'm embarrassed that people know what I believe about that. Homosexuality. I know what I believe, but I can't speak out because I'll, though they'll get angry and I'll get canceled and I won't be in the mainstream if I believe, if I let them know what I believe. And women issues in the church... Ooh, abortion, evolution? I don't dare speak out at school. Yeah, we're ashamed. We are ashamed of the gospel. The word that Paul uses there in the Greek language for ashamed literally means to bow to the face of a superior. And sometimes we do. Sometimes we get embarrassed by what we believe because the culture is shouting so many things on the opposite side and we bow to the face of our superiors, we believe. Paul said, I am not ashamed. This gospel not only travels to the West, it is the power of God. So first of all, live unashamed. Secondly, he said, the second four, verse 16, live in the power of your salvation. Notice the second four. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He uses the word power, something wrong would know, but he uses the word dunamis, the power of God and he uses that the power of your salvation it takes more than the power Rome had to save a soul and it takes more than the power you have to save your soul it takes the power of God the word for power that's used here is interesting it's put forward in the sentence it's a predicate, which means the emphasis is on the word power. So as you're reading it, it would be, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. It's the emphasis word. Paul knew his audience and said, you, you look at your culture and you think you see power. It's nothing compared to the power of God through the gospel of Christ. For your salvation. He was talking about that moment, that moment that you and I, whenever we realize that we are sinners, that, that we, are, we transgress a holy God, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins as our substitution, rose again on the third day, and where you come and I come to the place where we say, Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I transgress you, and Jesus died for me. I received Jesus into my life. I submit my life to you. And folks, if you've never done that, you don't believe the gospel of Jesus. 
Because believe means you place everything of who you are into Christ. So there must be a moment, a moment in time where every one of you not just come to church, not just try to be good, not just attend Sunday school, but you've had that moment of voicing to God, I am a sinner and I need Christ. It's the gospel. And at the moment you do that, Paul didn't say you're set on the road to salvation. He says at that moment you have salvation. You've got it. Look at the next phrase. To everybody, everyone who believes. I want you to notice the word everyone. Look at it on the screen here. It's the word in Greek, pas, P-A-S. And it literally means everyone individually and everyone collectively. It means all types, the whole, as many as. Everyone means everybody. So, if you want to receive Christ, you can do it. Paul did not write, for only the elect who believe can be saved, or the predestined. He said, pass, everyone. And everyone means you. Folks, you are not too far gone for God. You have not sinned too much for God. Your sins aren't too bad for God to save you. Because I hear people all the time still say that, Pastor, I've done too much, I've gone too far. God can never forgive me. Who are you to say God can't forgive you? If you want to be saved this morning, it's up to you. You're everyone. But notice the next phrase. To the Jew first in the Greek, that would have been jolting. Because the readers read it. To the Jew first in the Greek, we understand Jews can be saved. But Greeks, Greeks can be saved? Non-Jews can be saved? That would have been, that would have been surprising as they read it. Because both groups had those things which, which they would bring to God, hoping to be right with Him. The Jews would bring the Old Testament law, hoping they could be right. And the Greeks would bring their culture and their power to God, hoping to give it to Him to be right with Him. And Paul said, neither one works. You need the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Neither one's right before God. It's simple. Believing in Jesus is the door of salvation to every single person. And like Dr. Linsky says in this passage, he says, woe to the person who rejects it. And some of you have heard it, but you've not yet received it. So number two, live in your salvation. Number three, the third four, how to live. Number three, live by faith. Verse 17. Live by faith. Look at the next four. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
For faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Now, I want to talk just for a moment about the most important word in the entire sermon. Actually, the most important word in the entire passage this morning. There are some Bible scholars who say this word is the most important word in the entire New Testament. Several years ago, several summers ago, uh, I, I went through three straight summers where I took classes at Yale Divinity School, New Haven, Connecticut at Yale University, uh, three straight summers doing post- postdoctoral work there. Uh, I, was the, I was one of the few theological conservatives in the class. It's, it's really kind of fun. Um, but I took a class the first summer on 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a large book. It's 16 chapters. We spent two class periods on one word. One word out of 1 Corinthians. That's the word... Paul mentioned in Romans, I want to talk about. It's the word translated into English, righteousness. Righteousness, the righteousness of God. Now, in Greek, the Greek word you'll see on the screen here is dikaiosune. Dikaiosune means approval of the state or, or justice. What's interesting about the word dikaiosune, it was one word that dominated the Roman culture, the Greco-Roman culture. One word dominated. People talked about it. You heard it all the time. Dikaiosune, dikaiosune. They talked about it all the time because it was the standard by which they lived. They believed there was an objective standard out there of what was called righteousness. Now, Whenever you hear the word righteousness today, you don't hear it out in culture. But it was a secular word back in Rome. It wasn't a religious word at all. It was a secular word. Today, if you hear the word righteousness, you're in church somewhere. You don't hear that word outside of our walls. If you hear the word righteous, that's, that's in church. But it was the opposite in Rome. It was a secular word. And so they talked about it all the time. Judges would talk about, they took the oath of dekalaisune, of of being fair and just and doing what is legal and political and right and ethical. You know, it's a word that dominated the culture. Plato's Republic is filled with the word dekalaisune, and it's used in Greek mysticism. Aristotle used it over and over and over. Herodotus says that one word saved Athens. Philo wrote about it. Josephus wrote about it. So all the Roman world knew of Dekawaisune. And Paul came along and used their word to describe being right with God. Now Jesus had already used it. Three times in the Sermon on the Mount, first 20 verses, he used the secular word to Kalaisune and talked about the kingdom. And Paul came along and said, as he's writing to this sophisticated culture, you don't even know what Dekalaisune is. It's, it's the Dekalaisune of your creator, of where you'll stand before him 
and you must submit to his standard. And when the Romans got this letter, they must have been shocked at how Paul had used their own word to describe God. Now, there's one other note about that phrase that's really interesting. It's been a debate for hundreds of years, centuries. Here's the debate. The righteousness of God, that's a genitive, right? In English, in Greek, both. Is it interpreted as a subjective genitive or an objective genitive? Here's the difference. If it is a subjective genitive, that means the righteousness God possesses as a part of his character. You don't get it. He's got it. And you have to keep coming to him to receive it. If it is an objective genitive, that means the righteousness God has, he gives to you. You're righteous. There's a big difference. Which one is it? Well, for hundreds of years, the Roman Catholic Church interpreted the righteousness of God as a subjective genitive. That means God has righteousness. You don't. You keep coming to the church. You keep doing penance. You keep doing sacraments. And we will give you God's righteousness. You keep coming. But he's keeping it. But Martin Luther wrote, you know, after further study, he was a thinker. It's an objective genitive. Paul is saying God's righteousness in the gospel is given to you. And you're the righteousness of God in Christ. It's a big difference. So this Debate, which still rages today, by the way, it's still the difference, the primary difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestant churches. The, the primary difference still today is the linchpin. Paul says, whenever you receive Christ, God declares you the decaiusune of himself. Powerful phrase. Now, next he says it's revealed from faith for faith. What does that mean? It's God has it. He reveals it. He uses the word faith three times. God has the faith and he reveals it to you. And you believe. And then Paul quoted, he closed this verse by quoting an Old Testament prophet. Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk had said, the just, the righteous will live by faith. So Paul, years later, looks back at Habakkuk and says, you're right, Habakkuk. Brother Habakkuk, you're exactly right. The decaiusune of God is to those who have faith. And he uses the Greek word that they had used. So that truth stands for all time, folks. The just shall live by faith. And if you're ever going to see heaven, if I'm ever going to see heaven, 
it must be through faith in Christ alone and not one ounce of anything else but Christ. I was talking to a member of a church a while back, and we were talking about different things. I don't even know how it came up, and I basically said something about, yeah, you know, boy, through Christ, you know, we, we have a home in heaven. And she said, well, yeah, that helps. I said, that helps. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> oh, this is going to be interesting. I said, well, I, I think it's all of Christ. She said, well, that helps. You have to have faith in Christ, but you have to be good too. And you have to go to church. You can't just live like you want to live. So you have to have faith in Christ, but you, you have to be good too. You have to try. But according to Paul, not one ounce of anything else helps you to be right with God. In Jesus, you are the Kawaisune. I mentioned Martin Luther a moment ago. Um, let me tell you some of his story. He was born in 1483 in Germany. Here's a picture of Martin Luther. 1483 in Germany, and he was a devout Catholic. He loved God, and he loved the Catholic Church. He was very devout. He revered the Pope, very loyal. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer, and so he went to law school at the University of Erfurt in Erfurt, Germany. He was hoping he had one problem in life, and he was hoping that that problem could be solved at law school. His problem was he was tormented in his soul. There was something was wrong. There was just no peace inside. And he was hoping law school would do it, but it, it didn't. One time there outside the University of Erfurt, he was riding a horse during a thunderstorm, and a lightning bolt struck near, struck a tree near the horse, knocked him off the horse, and he felt that was a sign from God to become a monk because of this tormented soul he had. And so he, he fell off and he cried out, Oh, Saint Anne, help me and I will become a monk. And, and he lived and, and he became a monk, hoping that would help his tormented soul. And it didn't. He took vows, more vows and more vows, and it didn't help. Oh, he prayed harder and harder. He prayed day and night. It didn't help. He, he, he fasted. He went days without eating. And it didn't help. His soul was still tormented. And he thought, well, it, the problem's my flesh. So he began to beat himself and, and, and mutilate his own body, and it didn't work. He still had this soul in here that bothered him. And so he thought, what I need is to, I need to go to the Vatican and visit it personally. I've been in Germany the whole time. I need to go to the Pope. So he traveled to Rome, to the Vatican, and he left with this emptiness still there. And he thought, okay, now I don't, I don't need to go to Rome. I need to go to Israel. I need to retrace Jesus' steps. So he went to Israel, and, and, and the steps, the staircase that led up to Pilate, where Pilate would crucify Jesus, he thought, I need to retrace those steps that Christ walked, and I will somehow get relief from this soul. And he said, I'm not going to walk on my feet. He got on his knees, and he walked the steps on his knees up to the very top of the staircase. And he left, 
And his soul was the same. And he didn't know what to do. He met a friend um, who was a professor at Dork College nearby. And they developed a friendship. His name was Johann von Stoppitz. Luther would later write, had I not met von Stoppitz, my soul would have slid into hell. Von Stoppitz realized the torment Martin Luther was going through. And he said, listen, why don't, why don't you come to my class? I teach Bible classes at Dort College. It's Dort University today. Why don't you teach one of my Bible classes? Why don't you teach Psalms? Okay. So he taught Psalms. He was a thinker. He was an intellect. He liked it. He enjoyed it. And von Stoppitz said, well, why don't, why don't you teach Galatians now? So he taught Galatians. After Galatians, why don't you teach Hebrews? And he taught Hebrews. After Hebrews, why don't you teach Romans? And he taught Romans. And Martin Luther said one night he was studying for his class to teach in Romans. And something, something just fixed his gaze he couldn't get off. It was Romans 1.17, our passage this morning. I couldn't get away from it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The just shall live by faith. He said, I begin to meditate day and night. What does that mean? The Dekawai Sunni of God. What, what does that mean, he thought? And what happened next was revolutionary. In fact, let me let... Martin Luther tell you in his own words what happened next. He wrote this in the preface to the completed edition of Luther's Latin writings. Quote, The righteousness of God, ha! He punishes sinners. I lived as a monk without reproach, yet I felt like I was a sinner before God the entire time. It's not enough that we miserable sinners are eternally lost and condemned and crushed by every kind of calamity by the law without God adding pain to our pain by the gospel threatening us with wrath. I did not love Dekawai Sune. I hated it. I raged with a troubled, fierce conscience. I hated the righteousness of God. But at last, something happened. I meditated day and night on Romans 1.17. And I began to understand something. That the righteousness of God is a gift by faith. I am justified before God by faith. Wait a minute. I am justified before God by faith. He wrote, when I, when I realized that at that moment, it was as if I was altogether born again. That I had entered paradise through open gates. My mind raced through the scriptures from memory like an excited child justified by faith. Where have I seen that before? Is it elsewhere in scripture? Yes, there it is. Yes, there's another term. Yes, there's an analogy. It's all through scripture justified by faith. And he 
writes, Now I extol the word dekalisune as the sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred I had before of it. That one verse, Paul writes, Open to me the gates of paradise. And if you're ever going to see paradise, you must be justified by faith. God, it's my prayer today, those who are listening to me and those who are online will come to the same experience of Martin Luther that the Dekawai Sune of God is available through faith in Jesus and that we are not ashamed of the gospel that gives us power. Lord, today I pray for those who have never come to the place where, where they realize that they're a sinner and they submit to you by faith. Father, there may be some sitting here today, some watching today, their soul is just as tormented as Martin Luther's was. And they don't know what else to do. May today they come to you in faith and receive forgiveness, peace, and salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.